Section thirty two of Volume One B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one b section thirty two chapter sixteen part five it is a clause in one of edward's statutes that no man of what estate or condition soever shall be put out of land or tenement nor taken nor imprisoned nor disherited nor put to death without being brought in answer by due process of the law this privilege was sufficiently secured by a clause of the Great Charter, which had received a general confirmation in the first chapter of the same statute. Why then is the clause so anxiously, and as we may think, so superfluously repeated? Plainly, because there had been some late infringements of it, which gave umbrage to the commons but there is no article in which the laws are more frequently repeated during this reign almost in the same terms than that of purveyance which the parliament always calls an outrageous and intolerable grievance and the source of infinite damage to the people the parliament tried to abolish this prerogative altogether by prohibiting any one from taking goods without the consent of the owners and by changing the heinous name of purveyors as they term it into that of buyers but the arbitrary conduct of edward still brought back the grievance upon them though contrary both to the great charter and to many statutes this disorder was in great measure derived from the state of the public finances and of the kingdom and could therefore the less admit of remedy the prince frequently wanted ready money, yet his family must be subsisted. He was therefore obliged to employ force and violence for that purpose, and to give tallies at what rate he pleased to the owners of the goods which he laid hold of. The kingdom also abounded so little in commodities, and the interior communication was so imperfect, that had the owners been strictly protected by law, they could easily have exacted any price from the king, especially in his frequent progresses, when he came to distant and poor places where the court did not usually reside, and where a regular plan for supplying it could not be easily established. Not only the king, but several great lords insisted upon this right of purveyance within certain districts. The magnificent castle of Windsor was built by Edward III, and his method of conducting the work may serve as a specimen of the condition of the people in that age. Instead of engaging workmen by contracts and wages, he assessed every county in England to send him a certain number of masons, tilers, and carpenters, as if he had been levying an army. They mistake, indeed, very much the genius of this reign, 
who imagined that it was not extremely arbitrary. All the high prerogatives of the crown were to the full exerted in it, but what gave some consolation and promised in time some relief to the people, they were always complained of by the commons, such as the dispensing power, the extension of the forests, erecting monopolies, extracting loans. But there was no act of arbitrary power more frequently repeated in this reign than that of imposing taxes without consent of Parliament. Though that assembly granted the king greater supplies than had ever been obtained by any of his predecessors, his great undertakings and the necessity of his affairs obliged him to levy still more, and after his splendid success against France had added weight to his authority, these arbitrary impositions became almost annual and perpetual. Cotton's abridgment of the records affords numerous instances of this kind. In the first year of his reign, in the thirteenth year, in the fourteenth, in the twentieth, in the twenty-first, in the twenty-second, in the twenty-fifth, in the thirty-eighth, in the fiftieth, and in the fifty-first. In the subsequent year they desired that the king might renounce this pretended prerogative, but his answer was that he would levy no taxes without necessity for the defence of the realm, and where he reasonably might use that authority. This incident passed a few days before his death, and these were, in a manner, his last words to his people. It would seem that the famous charter or statute of Edward I, de talagio non consendendo, though never repealed, was supposed to have already lost by age all its authority. These facts can only show the practice of the times, for as to the right, the continual remonstrances of the commons may seem to prove that it rather lay on their side at least these remonstrances served to prevent the arbitrary practices of the court from becoming an established part of the constitution. In so much a better condition were the privileges of the people, even during the arbitrary reign of Edward III, than during some subsequent ones, particularly those of the Tudors, where no tyranny or abuse of power ever met with any check or opposition, or so much as a remonstrance from Parliament. In this reign we find, according to the sentiments of an ingenious and learned author, the first strongly marked and probably contested distinction between a proclamation by the King and his Privy Council, and a law which had received the assent of the Lords and Commons. It is easy to imagine that a prince of so much sense and spirit as Edward would be no slave to the court of Rome. Though the old tribute was paid during some years of his minority, he afterwards withheld it, and when the Pope in 1367 threatened to cite him to the court of Rome for default of payment, he laid the matter before his Parliament. That assembly unanimously declared that King John could not, without a national consent, subject his kingdom to a foreign power, and that they were therefore determined to support their sovereign 
against this unjust pretension. During this reign, the statute of provisors was enacted, rendering it penal to procure any presentations to benefices from the court of Rome, and securing the rights of all patrons and electors, which had been extremely encroached on by the Pope. By a subsequent statute, every person was outlawed who carried any cause by appeal to the court of Rome. The laity at this time seem to have been extremely prejudiced against the papal power, and even somewhat against their own clergy, because of their connections with the Roman pontiff. The Parliament pretended that the usurpations of the Pope were the cause of all the plagues, injuries, famine, and poverty of the realm, were more destructive to it than all the wars, and were the reason why it contained not a third of the inhabitants and commodities which it formerly possessed, that the taxes levied by him exceeded five times those which were paid to the king, that everything was venal in that sinful city of Rome, and that even the patrons in England had thence learned to practice simony without shame or remorse. At another time they petitioned the king to employ no churchman in any office of state, and they even speak in plain terms of expelling by force the papal authority, and thereby providing a remedy against oppressions, which they neither could nor would any longer endure. Men who talked in this strain were not far from the Reformation, but Edward did not think proper to second all this zeal. Though he passed the statute of provisors, he took little care of its execution, and the Parliament made frequent complaints of his negligence on this head. He was content with having reduced such of the Romish ecclesiastics as possessed revenues in England, to depend entirely upon him by means of that statute. As to the police of the kingdom during this period, it was certainly better than during times of faction, civil war, and disorder, to which England was so often exposed. Yet were there several vices in the constitution, the bad consequences of which all the power and vigilance of the king could not prevent. The barons, by their confederacies with those of their own order, and by supporting and defending their retainers in every iniquity, were the chief abettors of robbers, murderers, and ruffians of all kinds, and no law could be executed against those criminals. The nobility were brought to give their promise in Parliament, that they would not avow, retain, or support any felon or breaker of the law, Yet this engagement, which we may wonder to see exacted from men of their rank, was never regarded by them. The commons make continual complaints of the multitude of robberies, murders, rapes, and other disorders, which, they say, were become numberless in every part of the kingdom, and which they always ascribe to the protection that the criminals received from the great. The king of Cyprus, who paid a visit to England in this reign, was robbed and stripped on the highway with his whole retinue. 
Edward himself contributed to this dissolution of law by his facility in granting pardons to felons from the solicitation of the courtiers. Laws were made to retrench this prerogative, and remonstrances of the commons were presented against the abuse of it, but to no purpose. The gratifying of a powerful nobleman continued still to be of more importance than the protection of the people. The king also granted many franchises which interrupted the course of justice and the execution of the laws. Commerce and industry were certainly at a very low ebb during this period. The bad police of the country alone affords a sufficient reason. The only exports were wool, skins, hides, leather, butter, tin, lead, and such unmanufactured goods, of which wool was by far the most considerable. Knighton has asserted that one hundred thousand sacks of wool were annually exported, and sold at twenty pounds a sack, money of that age. But he is widely mistaken, both in the quantity exported and in the value. In 1349 the Parliament remonstrate that the king, by an illegal imposition of forty shillings on each sack exported, had levied sixty thousand pounds a year, which reduces the annual exports to thirty thousand sacks. A sack contained twenty-six stone, and each stone fourteen pounds and at a medium was not valued above five pounds a sack, that is, fourteen or fifteen pounds of our present money. Knighton's computation raises it to sixty pounds, which is near four times the present price of wool in England. According to this reduced computation, the export of wool brought into the kingdom about four hundred and thousand pounds, of our present money, instead of six millions, which is an extravagant sum. Even the former sum is so high as to afford a suspicion of some mistake in the computation of the Parliament with regard to the number of sacks exported. Such mistakes were very usual in those ages. Edward endeavoured to introduce and promote the woollen manufacture by giving protection and encouragement to foreign weavers and by enacting a law which prohibited every one from wearing any cloth but of English fabric. The Parliament prohibited the exportation of woollen goods, which was not so well judged, especially while the exportation of unwrought wool was so much allowed and encouraged. A like injudicious law was made against the exportation of manufactured iron. It appears from a record in the Exchequer that in 1354 the exports of England amounted to 294,184 pounds, 17 shillings and 2 pence, the imports to 38,970 pounds, 3 shillings and 6 pence, money of that time. This is a great balance considering that it arose wholly from the exportation of raw wool and other rough materials. The import was chiefly linen and fine cloth, and some wine. 
England seems to have been extremely drained at this time by Edward's foreign expeditions and foreign subsidies, which probably was the reason why the exports so much exceed the imports. The first toll we read of in England for mending the highways was imposed in this reign. It was that for repairing the road between St. Giles and Temple Bar. In the first of Richard the Second, the Parliament complain extremely of the delay of shipping during the preceding reign, and assert that one seaport formerly contained more vessels than were then to be found in the whole kingdom. This calamity they ascribe to the arbitrary seizure of ships by Edward for the service of his frequent expeditions. The Parliament in the fifth of Richard renew the same complaint, and we likewise find it made in the forty-sixth of Edward the Third. So false is the common opinion that this reign was favourable to commerce. There is an order of this king, directed to the mayor and sheriffs of London, to take up all ships of forty ton and upward, to be converted into ships of war. The Parliament attempted the impracticable scheme of reducing the price of labour after the pestilence, and also that of poultry. A reaper, in the first week of August, was not allowed above twopence a day, or near sixpence of our present money. In the second week, a third more. A master carpenter was limited through the whole year to threepence a day, a common carpenter to two pence, money of that age. It is remarkable that, in the same reign, the pay of a common soldier, an archer, was six pence a day, which by the change both in denomination and value would be equivalent to near five shillings of our present money. Soldiers were then only enlisted for a very short time. They lived idle all the rest of the year, and commonly all the rest of their lives. One successful campaign, by pay and plunder, and the ransom of prisoners, was supposed to be a small fortune to a man, which was a great allurement to enter into the service. The staple of wool, wool fells, leather and lead, was fixed by Act of Parliament in particular towns of England. Afterwards it was removed by law to Calais, but Edward, who commonly deemed his prerogative above law, paid little regard to these statutes, and when the Parliament remonstrated with him on account of those acts of power, he plainly told them that he would proceed in that manner as he thought proper. It is not easy to assign the reason of this great anxiety for fixing a staple, unless perhaps it invited foreigners to a market, when they knew beforehand that they should there meet with great choice of any particular species of commodity. This policy of inviting foreigners to Calais was carried so far that all English merchants were prohibited by law from exporting any English goods from the staple, which was in a manner the total abandoning of all foreign navigation, except that to Calais, a contrivance seemingly extraordinary. The pay of a man-at-arms was quadruple. We may therefore conclude that the numerous armies mentioned by historians in those times 
consisted chiefly of ragamuffins who followed the camp and lived by plunder edward's army before calais consisted of thirty-one thousand and ninety-four men yet its pay for sixteen months was only one hundred and twenty-seven thousand two hundred and one pounds it was not till the middle of this century that the english began to extend their navigation even to the baltic nor till the middle of the subsequent that they sailed to the mediterranean luxury was complained of in that age as well as in others of more refinement and attempts were made by parliament to restrain it particularly on the head of apparel where surely it is the most obviously innocent and inoffensive no man under a hundred a year was allowed to wear gold silver or silk in his clothes servants also were prohibited from eating flesh meat or fish above once a day by another law it was ordained that no one should be allowed either for dinner or supper above three dishes in each course and not above two courses and it is likewise expressly declared that soused meat is to count as one of those dishes it was easy to foresee that such ridiculous laws must prove ineffectual and could never be executed the use of the french language in pleadings and public deeds was abolished it may appear strange that the nation should so long have worn this badge of conquest but the king and nobility seem never to have become thoroughly english or to have forgotten their french extraction till edward's wars with france gave them an antipathy to that nation yet still it was long before the use of the english tongue came into fashion the first english paper which we meet with in rymer is in the year thirteen eighty six during the reign of richard the second there are spanish papers in that collection of more ancient date and the use of the latin and french still continued we may judge of the ignorance of this age in geography from a story told by robert of avesbury pope clement the sixth having in thirteen forty four created lewis of spain prince of the fortunate islands meaning the canaries then newly discovered the english ambassador at rome and his retinue were seized with an alarm that lewis had been created king of england and they immediately hurried home in order to convey this important intelligence yet such was the ardour for study at this time that speed in his chronicle informs us there were then thirty thousand students in the university at oxford alone what was the occupation of all these young men to learn very bad latin and still worse logic in thirteen sixty four the commons petitioned that in consideration of the preceding pestilence such persons as possessed manners holding of the king in chief and had let different leases without obtaining licenses might continue to exercise the same power till the country were become more populous the commons were sensible that this security of possession was a good means for rendering the kingdom prosperous and flourishing yet durst not apply all at once 
for a greater relaxation of their chains. There is not a reign among those of the ancient English monarchs which deserves more to be studied than that of Edward III, nor one where the domestic transactions will better discover the true genius of that kind of mixed government which was then established in England. The struggles with regard to the validity and authority of the Great Charter were now over. The King was acknowledged to lie under some limitations. Edward himself was a prince of great capacity, not governed by favourites, nor led astray by any unruly passion, sensible that nothing could be more essential to his interests than to keep on good terms with his people. Yet on the whole, it appears that the government at best was only a barbarous monarchy, not regulated by any fixed maxims, or bounded by any certain undisputed rights, which in practice were regularly observed. The king conducted himself by one set of principles, the barons by another, the commons by a third, the clergy by a fourth. All these systems of government were opposite and incompatible. Each of them prevailed in its turn, as incidents were favourable to it. A great prince rendered the monarchical power predominant. The weakness of a king gave reins to the aristocracy. A superstitious age saw the clergy triumphant. The people for whom chiefly government was instituted and who chiefly deserve consideration, were the weakest of the whole. But the commons, little obnoxious to any other order, though they sunk under the violence of tempests, silently reared their head in more peaceable times, and while the storm was brewing, were courted by all sides, and thus received still some accession to their privileges, or at worst some confirmation of them. It has been an established opinion that gold coin was not struck till this reign, but there has lately been found proof that it is as ancient as Henry the Third. End of section thirty two, chapter sixteen, part five.